Hey, it's Jeremy. I'm sure a lot of you are using video chat software these days, whether it's Zoom or Google Hangouts or Skype. And in some cases, that tech is using something called WebRTC. And this week, I'm sharing an episode I recorded with Spencer Dixon on building Tuple, a remote pair programming application. Tuple uses WebRTC, but what makes Tuple's use case interesting is that they wanted to get the latency as low as possible because when you're typing on a keyboard or you're moving your mouse, you want that to feel as seamless as possible, even if it's somebody else's computer. At the beginning, we talk about WebRTC and what it is, but then we move into the challenges of making a native Mac app, building a product when you're not familiar with the technology, and the tricks that Tuple use to cut down latency as much as possible. Spencer goes deep on this one, and I hope you enjoy it. First, could you give a quick introduction to what Tuple is for our listeners? Sure. So Tuple is a remote screen sharing application, uh, somewhat similar to Skype or Zoom or Slack calls. Uh, However, it's purpose-built for remote pair programming specifically. So all of our design decisions rely around making the best possible pair programming experience that we can. One of the things about Tuple is that you used WebRTC to allow for the screen sharing in order to see each person, in order to to see each person's screen and all that. Before we go into the specifics of building Tuple, I kind of wanted to set up what are the pieces that are in it. So to start, what makes WebRTC different and what is it used for? Sure. So it probably makes sense to give a high level view of like what WebRTC is before going into what it's used for. It's really uh, three things. It's a spec, which provides information on specific APIs. And then there's also the implementation side of it, which can be found in libwebrtc, which is this massive, you know, 5 million plus line C++ code base. Wow. And all of the major browsers use that libwebrtc to implement the spec in their respective browsers. So Google, Mozilla, Opera, and those APIs allow you to share any sort of real-time media. But it doesn't have to just be media. So one aspect of WebRTC that's pretty useful is the concept of creating data channels. So you can establish this connection between two peers and then really send whatever bytes of information you want from point A to point B, uh, which has some interesting use cases. I know people have built like BitTorrent clients using WebRTC. And, but its primary use is for capturing frames from the webcam or uh, you know, your screen buffer and sending them over to the other peer. For the the data channel you referred to, is that for everything that goes over WebRTC or is that only for specific types of uh, data? Yeah, the data channels will send data through SCTP and the audio and visual, audio and video data gets sent over RTP. And RTP actually is really two things. It's RTP and RTCP. So there's the real-time protocol and then the real-time control protocol. And RTCP allows the two peers to kind of send diagnostic information as to how the stream is going so that way they can update in real time. And I believe that WebRTC actually uses uh, some sort of extension to RTP, which allows it to send both those two protocols on one port instead of, I think traditionally RTP, you know, you use one port for the RTP and then you increment it by one and that's what RTCP gets sent on. You said they allows it to use the same port. So then are those two separate connections then to the same port? Uh, nope. So it's one connection that uh, all this kind of gets multiplexed over, I believe. You mentioned how, so RTCP, that's once two clients are connected to one another, kind of updating on how the stream is going. Would that allow for things such as like if one client is is getting a little slow, that it could 
talk they could talk to one another to say like oh i'm gonna lower the video quality or is it more for just like hey things are going bad but it doesn't really there's not much you can do about it yeah that's a good question i think at that level of the stack it's not making any intelligent decisions like that most of those decisions are happening uh, a bit higher and that's part of you know the magic of the web rtc video and audio pipelines um they're listening into those rtcp uh, responses to kind of get an idea of how much jitter there is in the network, how how the packet loss is, and adjusting the situation to be optimal for that. Cool. And you were saying that RTP, uh, that's where the actual video and audio data is. That's how that's being transmitted. Yep. And that's built on top of UDP, uh, which is Oh, so it's UDP and then DTLS. So DTLS is Datagram Transport Security Layer or Layer Security. It's the equivalent of TLS in the TCP world, but for UDP. So it's very important that you know all the packets are encrypted and somebody can't you know listen in. And then the packets after DTLS go through SRTP and SRTCP, which is just the secure version of those. A lot of protocols. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so like UDP, it, it has like no guarantees in terms of you send a packet via UDP and the uh, other. Right. So there's no reliability in the order that packets are going to be received. So they can be in in order or out of order. And then you also no longer get certainty that the packet will have arrived. In TCP, you do get those things. You're guaranteed to get packets in order and if their packet gets lost, it'll do a retransmission and you'll receive the packet. The real reason that UDP is much better for this situation is because it's a lot lower latency, but it also means that the WebRTC pipeline has to do a tremendous amount of work to make up for error correction, or in some cases, it even will ask for a retransmission of packets given the current context. So like if it's going to be cheaper to ask for the retransmission, so let's say the, the round trip time between Peer one and peer two is very low. Oftentimes, it'll be cheaper to just ask to retransmit the packet than um, do something else. So, the data channels which use SCTP, the, that's the main reason why they use SCTP is to be able to kind of configure the data channels to be in a reliable state if you wanted them to be. So, I don't actually know too much about stream control transmission protocol, but the easiest way to think about it is it allows you to simulate a TCP or TLS environment using underlying UDP packets. Hmm, okay. SCTP, that would be something that you would use maybe if you didn't have such a low latency requirement, or when would you use that instead of using RTP? Yep, that'd be one example. Or, you know, for tuple, there are certain messages that we want to make sure no matter what they go from point A to point B. And so our data channels are configured to be reliable and, and send those messages in order. For example, I mean, imagine if you were moving your cursor on the host's machine and the packet started coming in out of order. That would look super wonky if you saw the cursor jumping all over the place from you know, point A to point B. So we want to make sure that those messages are getting sent in order. And the fact that they're reliable is maybe a little bit less important, but the in order aspect for that use case, for example, would be something that we care a lot about. And is that because in the case of audio and video, there is sort of something higher in the stack that's taking care of things that are out of order or things that are being dropped, whereas in the case of 
the moving someone else's cursor example, um, there isn't that sort of thing in place. Is that kind of the, the thinking? Yeah, I think that's the right way to think about it. So the, the cursor example, that's very much at the application level. So Tuple, we've come up with our own protocol for how we want to send cursor data. Um, we do some fancy stuff like caching to make things a little bit quicker. But for the most part, that's all defined by us, where the audio and video stuff, that's all being handled by WebRTC. And WebRTC has a number of different buffers along the pipeline that enable it to fix out-of-order packets and then also allow for smooth playout. So for example, like one of the core abstractions in WebRTC is the concept of a track, like a media track. And a track could be audio, it could be video, it could be the screen. And uh, if you associate an audio track with a webcam track into a stream, then WebRTC does all of this magic for you where it'll properly buffer the audio and the webcam, and then the playout will occur so that way, you know, the person's mouth actually looks like they're talking instead of it being totally off. So it's somewhat of a double-edged sword. Like, if sometimes you don't want that, right? For Tuple, for example, we actually don't care if the audio is synced to the screen care more about lower latency. And we want that as soon as you click a button on someone's screen, you know, you see that that feedback. So we intentionally disassociate the audio track with that with that specific video track and tuple in order to get some latency benefits from there. The other thing, like when we're talking about audio and video being handled by WebRTC, there's a concept of a codec. So could you explain like what a codec is? Sure. Yeah. Codec takes in a raw image and compresses it to as, as best as it can based on different parameters. You kind of specify what you care about. And then part of the codec is decoding. So that's the encoding stage. Then, then it gets sent across the network through WebRTC and then then there's the decoding stage where it takes that encoded frame and brings it back to its original form. Sometimes they're lossy, sometimes they're lossless, depending on what settings you have. And different codecs are better at different things. For example, like H.264 is not as good at encoding very, very large frames like 4K displays compared to something like VP9. So how did you decide which codec to choose when you were working on Tuple? It's <laughs> a good question. So WebRTC already has a number of codecs built in or uh, rather like implementations of using the codecs. And we tested out VP8, VP9, H.264 with all sorts of different settings. Uh, one of the big value adds for Tuple is we allow you to send the full resolution of your display if you want to, which turns out to be very useful when you're reading small text in a text editor, for example. So in doing those performance tests, VP9 just outperformed all of the other ones like significantly on these higher resolution screens. And so that's why we went with that. VP9 is just a newer version of VP8. And then the VP10 actually got merged into what's called AV1. Uh, there's a whole bunch of big companies who've kind of merged together to build the next generation of codecs because Codecs are uh, one of the most complicated pieces of software and computer science, probably. And any one company doing it by itself, it, it, like it's just a lot of work. And so Google was generous enough to kind of offer you know, their resources and the current work they had going for VP9 to merge it into this new like, consortium. We are actually in the process, or I'm in the process of looking into using H.264 hardware accelerated encoding. So... That whole process I was just explaining, there was a built-in assumption in my explanation that this was all happening at the software layer. 
but a lot of uh, devices actually have hardware implementations of um, that encoding step or or the decoding step. And so uh, Macs do have H.264 hardware encoders built into them. And so now that we have introduced the webcam into Tuple, which for a long, long time, it was just the screen, there's definitely a lot of optimizations we can do by pushing some of that load from the CPU over to the GPU. And the plan is to hopefully get hardware accelerated encoding working for those webcam streams, because those we don't let get very big. I think the max resolution on those is like 320 by something, 240. It's small. Uh, We only have a small little webcam. So if, if I understand correctly, then the you would capture someone's video from, say, a camera, and that, that imagery, is it originally in an uncompressed format, and then you have to take that uncompressed imagery and compress it using a codec, but if the hardware of the machine, like, say, on a Mac, has uh, hardware support for H.264 or something else, then the GPU can actually perform the encoding and decoding instead of the CPU. Yeah, you got it. So in some of the webcams, they actually will have encoding built into the webcam. So you get an encoded frame already, I believe, but that's not like a use case that we're worried about at all. Uh, What you explained is exactly right. And for example, on most iPhones and phones, they all have H.264 hardware decoding, and it's very useful for extending battery life, uh, which is part of the reason why they do it. And does that apply also to desktop capture as well? When you capture the screen and you send it over the wire, um, that's also going through that same encoding process? Yep, yep. Same same general concept, uh, capturing the frame. Uh, the, the capturing step is there's a, a tremendous amount of optimizations that occur there as well. Luckily, WebRTC actually already had a pretty good Mac capturing setup, which I believe they actually grabbed from Chromium. And there was a couple of bugs in it we had to work out, but instead of capturing the entire frame buffer, what it does is it l- l- listens for like diffs. So it'll only, it'll keep like a local version of what the frame buffer is. And then whenever things change on the screen, it'll receive a callback. Like this is a low level display stream callback uh, in Mac OS and it'll get that diff and then it'll update its, its representation of what the frame buffer looks like. And then it'll pass that along to the next step. Uh, which then goes to the encoder to be encoded and sent across the wire. Interesting. So in web, the WebRTC library's implementation, they have sort of already done the work to hook into all these different operating systems and have the operating system tell them what's changed on the screen. So that's the only part they have to send. Is that is that right? Not entirely right. So Let's kind of break that down. So yes, WebRTC provides lots of default implementations for a lot of the big core components that you end up needing. Uh, And that capturing part specifically, which you were just talking about, it does send the whole frame to the encoder. And then the encoder actually is in charge of doing lots of very intelligent temporal and spatial diffs to figure out what's changed and then only send the pieces over that have changed. But more what I mean is in the capturing phase, instead of It'll just look for the screen updates and update the diffs in that specific part of the pipeline, if that makes sense. I don't know. I'm doing a bad job of explaining it. (laughs) I think I, well, let's see if I (laughs) was understanding correctly. So the part where it's checking for the diffs, that's specifically at the capturing stage. So that's 
it has like, I guess, a, a frame that it knows like, okay, this is what's currently on the person's screen. And in order to update that capture, it's hooking into the operating system. Is is that correct? Yeah, that's right. So that allows the capture times to go from, you know, tens of milliseconds to sub 10 milliseconds. Because mm. if you had to capture a very big 5k display, the original display stream APIs that Mac provided didn't have this sort of diffing available. And it might just take a significant chunk of time to do to do that, like, give me everything that's on the screen right now, where their capture kind of has some intelligence built in to, to not need to do that, which is nice. We There were some things in their capture, actually, in the early days that uh, really hurt us from a latency perspective. So they have this concept of like window exclusion. So let's say I want to capture the entire screen, but I don't want to capture you know the window that has the webcam on it, so the other person's face. Well, the, their exclusion code was somewhat naive in the sense that it would iterate over all of the windows in on the screen and kind of like recreate the pixels that would be behind that screen that you want to exclude. Hmm. And that actually ended up being very slow, depending on the size of the exclusion and, and how many windows were on your display. So we've had to do some things to kind of tweak and optimize that. In the specific webcam instance, what I do is I actually capture the frame as normal with the webcam on it. And then I go to that pixel buffer, uh, which is just, you know, a big array of the the bytes of the pixels. And I, I just turn all of the ones that the, you know, the square where the webcam is, I just turn them all to a different color. And so that way that and I do this before even going into the encoder. So that way the encoder is not worried about trying to encode two different types of video, right? Like mm-hmm. there's the screen video and then the webcam video. And there's lots of different optimizations that encoders can be tuned to, to do well in one scenario versus the other scenario. And we've spent all of our time in like testing and trying to get the RVP9 implementation to do very well for the screens. And so by, by you know, sending in a video on, on top of that, uh, it does us a disservice. So I, I kind of like get around that problem by whiting out those those pixels before feeding it into the encoder. Right. So the the WebRTC, I guess, screen capture part is uh, you're you're allowing it to capture the whole screen and capture the sort of webcam video, and then you're sort of going into there, blanking out all the pixels where you know the webcam window is showing, and then yep. then you send that over to the encoder, and to the encoder, it looks like nothing has had changed. It's just Change. always this this box. And yeah, white box, black box, whatever color. We we actually I actually change the color based on if they're on Mojave, if they're in darker light mode. So I try and make it look, you know, good for whatever mode they're in. Oh nice. It's pretty slick. Another part of WebRTC I want to kind of go into is there's this idea of a session description protocol. Um, could you kind of describe a little bit about what that is? Yeah. Really this gets down to like the establishing a connection between two peers. Uh, the overall protocol is called ICE, so it stands for Interactive Connectivity Establishment. Uh, it might make sense to go through an example of like how a normal call would would start. I haven't used the JavaScript APIs in like over a year since when we first started <laughs> working on Tuple, so I might get this a little bit wrong, but mm-hmm. do my best. So uh, initially, you want to create a peer connection, and you pass into that peer connection uh, constraints. And so the constraints are, you know, I want audio or I want video. And this is really the power of WebRTC, the fact that you can just say video true at the JavaScript JavaScript layer, and it just does all this magic to figure out how to capture the video and set up the encoder for you. You don't need to do any of that in the JavaScript API. 
So once you have your peer connection, before even that, you need some sort of what I like to call application signaling. Uh, and that's a process where, you know, let's say we have Alice and Bob and Alice sees that Bob is online. She needs some way to ask Bob if he's ready for a call right now. And ho- however she wants to do that is fine. Like most people end up using a WebSocket server and she just sends a message over to Bob and Bob can accept or decline. But assuming, you know, Bob is ready to go and he accepts, then Alice will she'll call Navigator uh, Get User Media given those constraints. So this will signify to the browser like hey go ahead and get those capturers going you know start getting frames from the screen or start getting um, frames from the webcam and once it's got those frames it'll give back some some media tracks and then alice can add those media tracks to her peer connection and then create the initial offer so when she creates the initial offer that's when the sdp gets created I know there's a million acronyms, I'm sorry, but um, <laughs> the the SDP is is basically just this really big string of super esoteric like letters and colons and n- magic numbers that will tell Bob, you know, what capabilities Alice is looking for in the call. So, for example, things that are on there might be, you know, she's trying to do video, she's trying to do audio. And inside the video section, it might say her computer is capable of doing VP9, VP8, or H.264. So if Bob only has the ability to do H.264, maybe he's on like a phone or something, then the Web WebRTC will allow them to negotiate this session with just H.264. So that's really the whole point of the SDP is for the two peers to be able to share like what their capabilities are and preferences. So you can also explicitly say like, in this call, I want to use, you know, this encoder implementation. She calls create offer that SDP gets generated and pretty much every single step in this process is async. So you kind of have to wait for callbacks to get called. Once she gets that offer, she then needs to send it to Bob and how she does that again, doesn't really matter. She could write it down on a piece of paper and send it to him. And this process would still technically work. Um, I've messed around with some WebRTC stuff where I, I just copy and paste this SDP from one computer to the other. So this this part is totally left up to you as the developer and, and application builder. So sends that to, to Bob. Bob will set that SDP as um, his remote description, and then he will create an answer given that SDP. And once that answer gets created, another SDP is generated on Bob's side. And Bob will set that as his local description and then send that back to Alice. Uh, And then once Alice receives Bob's STP, then the process enters into this ICE interactive connectivity uh, stage. And yeah, so what happens there is on each WebRTC client, there's what's called an ICE agent. And the ICE agent is responsible for gathering uh, what are called ICE candidates. So an ICE candidate is just a IP port pair. Uh, And the first thing that the ICE agent will do is it'll gather all of its local candidates. And then it uses a process called STUN to gather any remote candidates. So STUN servers are, stands for uh, Session Traversal Utilities for NAT. And it's really a tool for NAT hole punching, which I think was originally created by like video game developers, but I could be wrong. But stun servers are very simple. You're basically just making a request to this server that's publicly available on the internet. And that's very important. Like that server has to be publicly available on the internet. And the server just responds back with what IP and port you made that request. 
with. And Google actually hosts a stun server that most people use in the early days to get going with WebRTC. Uh, it's very highly recommended to not use Google's stun server in a production environment because for all you know, it could go down one day and then none of your users will be able to connect and make calls. Uh, for Tuple, we actually pay uh, Twilio for access to a stun and turn server. All right, so the ICE agent on each peer has gathered the local candidates. They've gathered the remote candidates through making requests to the stun server. And then the final step is like what's called connectivity checks. So you have this array of these ICE candidates, which are those IP port pairs, and it organizes them based on a, a set of priorities. And as a developer, you do have some say in that priority if you want, or you can just let WebRTC make an intelligent decision. Uh, generally, it's going to try and start with the local candidates first, and it's going to fall back to the remote. And then the final candidates it'll use are what are called turn candidates. So, um, <laughs> sorry, this is so much. <laughs> but turn is a way for the two peers to still have a call if for some reason they can't establish a connection peer-to-peer. So a turn server just relays packets from point A to point B. And for the most part, I think all turn servers are also stun servers. Like I think it'd be weird to have a turn server that didn't also implement the stun protocol. It does those connectivity checks where the two peers try and communicate with each other based on that ordered list of of ICE candidates. And as soon as one uh, is successful, then the connection gets established. And throughout the call, you know, that might change. Maybe the, the network path that was chosen ends up being no good anymore. And so ICE, the ICE state will change throughout the course of a call to disconnecting, for example. And as an application developer, it's your responsibility to, you know, pop open a reconnecting window or let the user know that the, the call is uh, not connected. And oftentimes ICE will uh, recorrect itself. So it'll just keep going down, you know, that prioritized list of candidates until it finds one that's good. And if you have turn set up, it's, it is optional. You don't have to have turn set up and it does cost a lot of money because you have a lot of bandwidth going through these turn servers, relaying, you know, potentially big frames of media data. But eventually if you have turn, it should always connect because the turn server is always publicly available on the internet. So if, if a peer can't connect with turn, it means they have other issues going on most likely. So um, let me see if I can unpack this. <laughs> <laughs> so to start, you have the sort of initial file that describes what kind of codec and what kind of bandwidth is available to each client and yep. like what sort of IPs and ports they have available. And um, so that's both, you know, both peers have to create a file that has this information. And then you need some way of sharing this file um, outside of WebRTC. So you said that could be through WebSocket or like you said, you could even just copy and paste the text, right? Yep. And um, then you mentioned how there is a, uh, there's a stun server and that is because it's sometimes machines can't connect to one another directly and you have to find some way of going through the NAT of each user. And I guess the stun server helps to negotiate that. Yep, that's right. And then you said there's a turn, and I don't remember what that acronym is, but... Oh, it's traversal using relays around NAT. Okay. <laughs> and so if the two users are unable to establish a direct connection through the stun server, um, then the video or the audio data will go to the turn server and then will be streamed from the other client 
from the turn server. So it's no longer a peer-to-peer connection. Yep. Yeah, you got it. And the turn servers are pretty dumb. They just relay you know, the packets from point A to point B. So in the case of Tuple, do you establish a peer-to-peer connection first and then fall back to a turn server? Or what does that look like in Tuple? Yeah, that that's always the ideal case. And and for you know real world world metrics, I would say anywhere in the range of eighty-eight to ninety-four percent of the connections can can be established without turn. So it's it's very low percentage that end up actually needing turn. In the early days, we actually did not support turn, but then occasionally, you know, we'd get support tickets with people saying we weren't able to connect. And to be honest, the experience when you're using turn, is just, it's not fantastic because you're adding all this additional latency, but there is a certain level of importance in just being able to let the clients connect, even if it isn't going to be the greatest um, experience, at least they're able to collaborate a little bit or, or even like have some audio going. So we use Twilio for that service. We don't manage our own turn servers. There are very popular open source libraries. I think Coturn is the is the big one. And then there's there are other companies that do hosted turn servers for you. I think Xerxes Zer- is uh, one of the other big names. Um, but we've, we had all used Twilio in the past for other companies and we're familiar with their docs and APIs and stuff. So we set that up. And as far as when in the process you need to configure turn, uh, when you go to create a peer connection, you you can pass in a configuration object, and that configuration object will have the URLs of the stun servers that you want to use, and you can use multiple stun servers, so it can, you know, back up to one if one is not reachable, and you also provide it with the turn URL, and so. When we go to create a call, first we have to make a request to Twilio and get you know a new auth token to then pass in for that turn URL. And this information about stun and turn, is this embedded into that text file you're talking about that has all the codec metadata and so on? No. So there's actually two, two parts of it. So the SDP gets created that has all the media information. And then once you've set, I believe, I'm not 100% certain, but I think once you set the remote description, that's when the ICE agent kicks in and starts generating these ICE candidates. And so you'll have this callback that's like on, on ICE candidate, essentially. And you are also responsible for sending each of those ICE candidates over to the other peer because uh, they both need to have that list in order to... Um, do the, the connectivity checks. Uh, and there is another thing, just to make this even more confusing, um, <laughs> called trickle ice, where uh, in the original ice implementation and the early days of WebRTC, uh, it, the time to connect calls was very slow because it, both the ice agents needed to collect all of the possible ice candidates before starting to test them and see if things were, if they were able to connect. But there was a new spec released a couple years ago at this point, I think, that allowed the ICE candidates to start checking a little bit sooner, like kind of like uh, just in time, like as they're uh, coming in. And so that speeds up the connection process significantly. And, and we, we do that. With, so we do what's called trickle ICE. So as soon as we get that ICE candidate, we send it to the other peers so that way they can start testing them out and seeing if they're able to establish a connection with each other. Cool. I think that's like we've got a pretty good overview of sort of what WebRTC is and sort of what the different pieces are. So next, I want to sort of go more into building Tuple specifically. Tuple is, like you said, it's a pair programming application. So you have the uh, webcam capture, you have the desktop capture, you have remote control of each other's machines. And then, of course, as with any uh, SaaS application, you have uh, billing and accounts and so on and so forth. So 
when you first started working on Tuple, how did you decide what to build first? It's <laughs> a good question. I think in the very early days, it was a lot about just validating if we could do certain things. So for example, one thing that was very important to us is as a developer, I constantly use command tab to, to cycle through my various applications. Yep. And so we wanted to validate, like, can we remotely send a command tab from machine one to machine two? So that way they can feel as if they're local. Mm-hmm. So that was like something we, we wanted to validate very early on. And even before that was, can we even, you know, establish a connection between the two, the two peers? Luckily, WebRTC actually makes that that initial spike phase very fast. Like I think the within our first weekend of kind of getting going on Tuple, we had like a, a real screen sharing app that sent the screen from A to B and you could move the mouse around. The thing was that was all an electron in these very high level JavaScript APIs. And the performance was not nearly as good as what we what we wanted. When you're referring to the performance, is that the latency or what, what was the part that was an issue in the browser? Yeah, latency and quality. There's a lot of constraints that, let's see, what's a good way of explaining this? So WebRTC, like I said, is this you know very, very large code base. And they expose a lot of things with their APIs, which allow you to hook into the system. For example, like creating your own video encoder or doing the capturing on your own. But there's also a lot of parameters that are built into that video pipeline and that audio pipeline where... The browser just made certain decisions because the browser has its own goals, right? Like the browser doesn't want to use up all your resources. People already complain about, you know, Chrome using up a, a high percentage of their CPU. Well, there's certain things that Chrome, the, in the way that they use LibWebRTC, they ensure that you know the CPU gets throttled, and if it's using a certain amount, then it's going to downgrade the quality of the stream or you know make certain trade-offs and. Uh, we recognized very early on that like, if we were going to use WebRTC in the context of Electron, uh, we just weren't going to be able to push the needle as far and as fast as we wanted to. And that's really what kind of led to us uh, extracting out you know, that initial uh, spike into uh, C++ and a Swift implementation. So it's basically Chrome or the web browser, is it, they have their own WebRTC implementation, or they're using the, the library, I guess, that was created in C++. Is that correct? Yeah, so Chromium will use LibWebRTC, and then they'll kind of tweak certain settings. Uh, and like, for example, a, a classic one is they have a bandwidth cap. Like each peer connection, I think, can only have two megabits per second of bandwidth. So like we, we, the first thing we did was increase that cap. And just doing that allows us to send a higher quality frame. And most of the time, that's just fine. Because people, or at least for our target market, they have good internet. So that cap doesn't necessarily, they don't care about that, right? Mm-hmm. Is that something that you don't have control over when you're running in, say, uh, Chromium? Yeah, or just the JavaScript APIs. The JavaScript APIs are very high level. You don't really get much control. I mean, it's 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 a blessing and a curse. Like you're able to get something going very quickly, but as soon as you start wanting to do something very specific, you run into these pain points where, like, if we wanted to continue down the Electron route, we probably would have had to build a custom version of Chromium with our custom version of WebRTC that then we built a custom version of Electron with that custom version of Chromium, if that makes sense, which we could have done. And looking back at it now, you know, it'd be interesting to see what that would look like, but it would have taken a long time. It would have just been a real big pain to do, (laughs) (laughs) honestly. (laughs) 
Yeah, I mean, I guess it's sort of the the sort of thing where you start going down that road and you're not sure what you can or can't do or whether it was a good idea until you really try it, right? Yeah, and then I know Chromium has this whole concept of uh, sandboxing. And so I imagine if we had gone down that route, there would be a lot of fighting with that sandbox environment. Like there's a lot of things that we need access to and APIs that, you know, we wouldn't be able to distribute our app on the app store because even just to do that like command tab thing, uh, you need pseudo privileges essentially to be able to do that. Yeah, I think I remembered hearing that um, Screen Hero, which was a screen sharing application that came before when they were acquired by Slack, um, they were kind of asked to like try and make it work as an Electron app. And it sounded like they had a lot of difficulties, a lot of struggles with doing that. So so maybe uh, maybe native is the way to go. Yeah, no, uh, for sure. We we talk to those guys. Like we definitely think of ourselves as the spiritual successor to Screen Hero. Like we were 100% uh, inspired by them to build this company, and uh, we're very friendly with their founders. And they've given us a lot of tips and advice over over the year or so, and we're very grateful for that. Uh, Don's helped me with some of my mouse implementation stuff, and Faraz has given us good tips on other things. So very cool. Kind of after all this, you you first started, um, you experimented with using Chromium, using the JavaScript APIs, and then ultimately decided to to move towards building a native app. But yeah, it's just, it's interesting. Like from going from Electron, the first step was actually going, or the next step was going to Swift. We actually didn't want to do any C++ stuff. So at the time we hired somebody to help us fix the WebRTC Mac SDK. So there was actually already like a pretty pretty well built out SDK in Swift hmm. and Objective-C for interacting with these low level C++ WebRTC APIs, but it wasn't working, like it wasn't compiling. Mm-hmm. They, that's uh, been a common <laughs> thread, unfortunately. And my usage of WebRTC is oftentimes the Mac. The Mac stuff kind of gets, they don't really ensure it's always up to date or going to work properly. There's a lot of like, a lot of that's kind of been put on us. Um, but yeah, so we originally hired him to, his name was Sam. He was the one of the first engineers at Sketch, actually, Sketch.app, the prototyping tool. And he built like a WebRTC framework for us, which we then used for a while. Uh, and even that, we decided we didn't have enough customization over the different parameters that we wanted and that we'd have to go another layer deeper. The WebRTC Mac SDK, is that something that is um, built into the operating system or is that a open source project? Like, where is that coming from? That's coming from LibWebRTC. So they have uh, Objective-C bindings to all their C++ code. And one of the beauties of Swift is you can uh, bridge Objective-C to Swift relatively easily. And so we were able to call into those C++ APIs through Swift doing that. In Swift uh, and Mac development, Cocoa development in general, their libraries are called frameworks. And so Sam basically built us this like web WebRTC framework that we were able to to use to to get going in the early days. And I, I'm honestly very grateful looking back that that was the progression because you know prior to Tuple, I've only been building websites my entire life. I'd never built you know a native application before, and there's a whole lot of stuff to learn in just building Cocoa applications and mm-hmm. Mac development in general. And so by getting this opportunity to kind of like ease into it, uh, I mean I was definitely very stressed at the time, and I, <laughs> uh, but. If I had had to jump into the C at that point, I I don't like I would have been way too stressed. I don't know what would have happened. So getting comfortable with the Mac development first and then going into the C stuff was a good progression, I would say. 
Yeah, so let's see. There's the lib WebRTC, which is a C++ API, and they provided an Objective-C wrapper for that as a part of the official project. Yep. But it sounded like that wrapper... Was somewhat out of date. Yeah, okay. So for perspective, WebRTC has like 200 commits a week on the project, and it moves really, really fast, especially... I think in the early days, it was moving even faster than it is now, but they'll often change like the correct way of doing things. So even in the one year that I've been working in it, they've changed how to do some of the like track and stream management. Um, So like we've had to kind of like, you know, adopt the new practices for that. And, And a byproduct of that is if they're changing things a lot, the SDKs don't always stay up to date. Mm. So Sam, who was already an expert in Objective-C and Swift, he helped us kind of get that caught up for our needs, uh, essentially just porting over the specific APIs we knew we, we needed at the time to be able to get the calls going and everything. Looking back at it, like there was a ton of things that we now use from WebRTC that he didn't port over. So you know, it's good that we now are just able to do that ourselves. And whenever we need new stuff, we kind of we write all of this glue code to to make it work. There's a surprisingly large amount of glue code between different languages in Tuple. I think altogether we have seven different languages that we use, wow. which can get somewhat confusing for my brain sometimes. <laughs> so that's um, yeah, I mean that's pretty um, pretty wild. So you said you you had a background just in building websites and web development, and now you're in an environment where you're working with several different languages. So um, I guess, how did you, how did you tackle that? How did you start piecing together, you know, what to learn and how to do that? For me, the way I learned best is through reading books and building little sample projects that test the knowledge of the the books that I read. And then I'll often go back and reread the sections that uh, were confusing to me or that I think are important for me to know better. So a lot of that, I, I probably read like 50 or 60 books this last year. Wow. I have like stacks and stacks of C++ books, Cocoa books, Objective-C books, Swift books. And then as I was reading them, I would I would build static site generator and Blackjack were usually my, my first two projects in each language. Hmm. I think static site generators are actually like a very good like get your feet wet into a new language type of project because it involves networking, async stuff, it involves reading the file system, involves templates, and basically all the main things you touch in a language you kind of get by building a static site generator, especially if you 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 get like, you know, parsing command line args and all of that. So that was my main strategy. Then uh, we did once we started getting some revenue, which was awesome, Ben did an amazing job of actually pre-selling some tuple before we even had the product. Uh, we used a lot of that money in the early days to consult with experts. So a couple of people that Sam Guy told you about who worked at uh, Sketch, he kind of helped get the initial Xcode project set up. And, you know, there's this... There's this thing whenever you change languages, after you've done a project or two in that language, you have you know more opinions on how you would set up the the structure of the project. Um, no, uh, you know once you know the ecosystem better. And uh, one thing I just didn't know anything about was Xcode or how to properly set up you know packages to be libraries and stuff like that. And so uh, Sam kind of helped guide us in that, which it seems so simple and silly to have paid someone for that. Looking back, but. Like now I know all that stuff very well, but it gave us a lot of confidence knowing that we had a strong foundation and that, you know, the frameworks we were building to be reusable and stuff were set up properly. Yeah. Lots of YouTube videos, talking to experts, building lots of side projects and 
kind of taking like one topic at a time and, and trying to isolate it from the rest of the parts that that was very useful. Basically reading a ton of books, building small projects, having some consulting help. One thing I, I did want to ask too is, is about WebRTC specifically, were there any specific resources you used or did you have someone you consulted with uh, to learn about that? Yeah, unfortunately, the, the resources for learning WebRTC are, are not the greatest, I would say, compared to, especially if you're coming from the web world where, you know, there's somebody who has written some sort of ebook or tutorial series that you could just buy for X dollars and kind of level up on that topic quickly. For WebRTC, the best source of, source of truth is just reading the header files, <laughs> mm, really. Like yeah. most of what I know about native WebRTC has been from reading the code. That's not a great answer. And I hate when people give me an answer like that. So um, some other good resources are WebRTC hacks. That's, um, forget the gentleman who runs that, but we had lunch with him at one point in the early days and he gave us some good tips and, and resources as well. Cosmo Software, Dr. Alex, he's a PhD in video encoder. I think he has like multiple PhDs and he's been in doing WebRTC since the early days, like 2012, 2013, something like that. Uh, he's extremely knowledgeable. He's very uh, prolific in the Google groups. So there's, um, there's like a WebRTC Google group and he's always answering questions and helping beginners. And so I would definitely recommend, you know, not being shy in, in that Google group. And people are generally pretty nice as long as you've done your research and or provide, you know, good uh, examples of what you've tried and what hasn't worked, then people are, you know, very, very willing to give you some tips. And yeah, the, I guess just if you're, if you're working at the higher level of abstraction, the Mozilla docs are really good. So the Mozilla docs have some great examples of how to use the various JavaScript APIs. Uh, there's a fantastic book called high performance browser networking. I forget the author's name. I think it's like Igor or something that has a good section on WebRTC and just in general is a great book for anybody who's doing networking or web development. It talks a lot about, you know, TCP slow start and various things to, to improve the performance of your web apps. Cool. Yeah. So yeah those would be my go-tos. That's a lot. Yeah. But yeah well, honestly, just building, building stuff too. just build some little side projects. It's a great way to learn. Yeah, we'll, uh, we'll be sure to get all these links into the show notes. Definitely. The other thing I guess I wanted to ask about is you mentioned that you're using seven languages. So I kind of wanted to get a better picture of why are there so many languages involved in the project? I think that the main reason why we have so many languages is because we had certain expertises in prior languages, and therefore we were a lot more effective at building parts of the application in those languages. A lot of the decisions we made, like it, it's very clear that like this language is the best for doing this type of thing, and therefore that's why we should be using it for this. But there are like some situations I would say where if we, if I had just already been an expert C plus plus developer, like maybe I wouldn't have done so much in Swift or Objective C, right? But yeah, so like we have Ruby for our backend APIs, Ruby and Rails, and we were all Rails developers, so that made sense. We can move quickly. Uh, we have JavaScript for our partially on the backend site. There's a little JavaScript and then also our UI inside of the application. I, I basically ended up building a Electron inside of our app hmm. that lets me call JavaScript code and Swift code together. It kind of bridges those. And the primary motivator behind that was I originally started off building all these native NS views and 
it takes a long time. Like if you're coming from a web background where you can spin up, you know, a basic website with some CSS in an hour or 15 minutes, and then you go to this native world where it might take me an entire day just to build a button that like kind of looks not like what I actually want it to look. Mm. The difference in that time is, is drastic. Like I, I do think that one day Tuple's entire UI will probably be native, but we wouldn't have sur- we i mean i don't want to say we wouldn't have survived as a startup but it, it would have taken so long to get to the ui to where it is right now if i hadn't just written it all in javascript which i i know and i'm very fast in like our our current ui probably took me like a weekend to do that was like the the least time sink out of the entire project hmm. and then uh, the swift because it's a lot m- more fun and fast to develop in swift than it is objective c or c++ so we try and do like the minimal amount of C++ and C code that we need to interface with these low-level APIs because a lot of APIs are just easier to interface with in C++ or C or we're communicating a lot with WebRTC. So it makes sense to kind of keep that code all co-located. And then um, Objective-C and Objective-C++ are what allow us to uh, call into the C++ libraries that we have uh, in Objective-C. And then that Objective-C gets bridged over to the Swift so I think that's all the languages. Let's see, Swift, Ruby, JavaScript, Objective-C, Objective-C++, C++, and C. And then, you know, like CSS and all that. Right. So that's kind of interesting. So it's the the actual UI of Tuple is primarily um, a web view then, it sounds like. And then yep. you're using Swift, I guess, to communicate, I guess, with the operating system level APIs. Um, when possible. And if it's not possible, then you kind of go down into Objective-C or C or C++ um, just based on whether or not the um, API you're talking to is written in C or C++. Yep. That's essentially how I'd think about it. And sort of, I guess, in the end, like when you look at all the code that you've written for the project, you know, is what is most of the project written in? It's a good question. I can probably have GitHub just tell me when I look at the thing. All right. So... Uh, 40% Swift, 20% C++, 20% CSS, 10% JavaScript, 10% Objective-C, 5% Objective-C++, 1% other. So probably like like text files, readme files, documentation, stuff like that. Hmm, interesting. It's a big breakdown. And that's just the that's just the client app, by the way. Like there's there's also the backend app, which oh, is the right, Ruby and right. Rails app and stuff. That's right. That's just the one that I'm you know working in most of the time. So the the parts that are written in Swift versus in C++, I would guess the C++ parts, it's probably working with the uh, the libwebrtc. Is that correct? Yep, libwebrtc. And then there's another uh, C++ library we use to help out with some like mouse coordinate stuff that I also use C++ for. No, yeah, you're right. Primarily, most of the C++ is us uh, creating our own utilities around webrtc. And then you said 40% is Swift. So like, what is, what is most of that Swift code doing? Rendering, rendering the UI, doing diagnostics, handling uh, different mouse modes. So in the app, we have different cursor modes, which allow people to, you know, point out specific things. Yeah, uh, just like all of the normal things involved with getting an app like a, a native Mac OS app running. Mm. There is a lot like authentication, you know, talking to our API Doing handling feature flags, so only showing certain features to certain people until we've kind of validated that they're going to be good. 
handling like deep linking is the most recent thing I've been working on. So being able to, you know, start a call using a, a special tuple URL, which enables things like Alfred integrations or Slack call integrations, talking to our analytics service to get an idea of, you know, what features people are using and what, you know, what we should be focusing on. Hmm. I think that's, that's most of the stuff I can think of that the Swift layer is doing. I mean, there's also the Swift layer manages like the state of what the UI should look like. And then it just sends that state across the JavaScript and the JavaScript renders it appropriately. So there's a, a good amount of code dealing with that. Mm-hmm. Then there are like a lot of windows that aren't WebKit views that, that are native windows, like the preferences window mm-hmm. for uh, like changing various things throughout the application. So when when we can, we, you know, we want to use the native APIs and when we think it really makes a difference or it matters. So for example, when um, you're guesting and you you're looking at the screen of someone else's computer, we use the native Mac OS toolbar that lets you change all the different cursor modes and um, the screen resolution, and we use all native controls for that. Yeah, so it seems like Swift is really, it almost feels like it's sort of the heart of the application with the exception of the C++ for the WebRTC interaction, and then you've got some of the web views for some of your UI components, but those are kind of like the maybe the three main parts. Yep. Yeah, that's a that's a good breakdown. Cool. I guess my next question would be when you were working on the project, was there anything you found much easier than you thought it would be? Hmm. Uh yeah, I think that the call stats ended up being a lot quicker. So for some context, in the tuple application, you know, one of the uh, unique opportunities we have because our user base is primarily developers, they're somewhat technical. And so we actually expose the stats of the call well a tuple session is going so you can see things like the frame rate that's being sent you know the frame rate that's being output how long it's taking to encode a frame or decode a frame what the available bandwidth is uh, and all of these stats that are very useful if you kind of know uh, this space and are somewhat technical we i created like a little dashboard interface to to show that stuff and it ended up being a lot quicker than i anticipated primarily because WebRTC is so great like they provide these raw stat reports that that they're getting from the rtcp which we talked about at the very beginning of the call and yeah that ended up being a lot quicker than i i mean that, uh, honestly i didn't even talk to ben and joel about doing that just one weekend i was like hmm, it'd be really nice if i had some dashboards to be able to look at what's going on in a call so when i'm debugging things i can figure out you know when i change this setting does this get faster or slower and so um that that would be one thing that took a lot quicker and that, another thing i would say is the webcam i was very scared about introducing the webcam after we spent whatever it was, 10 months working on only screens, but it ended up being very quick and painless. And that's definitely a testament to, you know, the Google engineers and WebRTC as a whole. And I think it it definitely helped that I knew WebRTC a lot more intimately right. when I did that implementation. And I guess I should have realized that at the time that like, oh man, I actually know a lot about this now and it probably won't be too bad. But I was very scared at the prospect of <laughs> having to add that into the application. Yeah. Was the the main thing you were worried about, was it like the capturing from the webcam? Like you kind of weren't sure what that was going to be like? Or what were you thinking, I guess? I was worried about the UX of it. So how it would affect the current call experience. I was worried about the bandwidth concerns. So webcam eating up a lot of bandwidth, making the screen less reliable or mm. even eating up so much bandwidth that, you know, data channel messages get delayed. And and then um, that experience, like the, the remote control experience gets downgraded because of it. 
Uh, I was worried. I was worried about just even the very basic things like uh, making, adding the additional stream and getting it all set up correctly. Uh, at that time, I was using WebRTC in a little bit more of a naive way when it came to like establishing the connection. Uh, there's what's called a transceiver API, which you can get a little bit deep into. Most tutorials don't really talk about it. But basically, a transceiver is an RTP sender and an RTP receiver. And you can set those transceivers up to be like bidirectional or one way. So you can either you know just receive audio or can send and receive audio. And I had to do a pretty major refactor of how our WebRTC code worked in order to use those newer APIs that had been like when we originally had set it up, like there wasn't really any push to be using those APIs. Like it was fine to use the old stream-based APIs. So yeah, basically there was a big refactor that was going to touch major critical pieces of the code base. And that was really where a big part of the concern was. But it ended up working out great. And, you know, WebRTC is doing what it, what it says it's going to do. So <laughs> very grateful. Nice. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of like like you've, you've kind of been talking about how there's so many things built into WebRTC that if the way they do it meets your use case, then it's kind of like, you know, boom, you're, you just kind of use it and you're good. Um, and it's only when you're a little bit outside of what they do in the browser or whatnot that you have to kind of dive in and start doing something custom. Yeah, definitely. And and one day, you know, I very much hope to actually not use the video pipeline in WebRTC and build a completely custom tuple pipeline. I, I honestly like don't know. I have some ideas on how I would go about doing it, but I'm not confident enough in my abilities to like think that I could do better than WebRTC is doing right now for us. I do think that there are a lot of trade-offs that WebRTC is making, which in our specific use case, we might not really want. So for example, like they have a pretty big jitter buffer, which will ensure that if packets are missing or get lost, like it'll it'll just wait until it gets them. But in Tuple, like what we'd prefer to do is just drop the frame completely at a set rate. And mm. so it's like if I'm not getting all the packets I need by, you know, whatever my target FPS is, then like just don't even wait in the jitter buffer. Just like forget about it. And there are uh, there are like knobs and whistles you can tune in WebRTC to kind of make those decisions. But having complete control over it all seems appealing to me. So one day maybe we'll we'll kind of get more in, in that direction, which would be awesome. I think there's a lot of low-hanging fruit in the performance of Tuple still. Uh, it's just like this last year has been so much of just leveling up all the skills uh, we needed as a team in order to to execute like the V1. And now, you know, next year is going to be a lot of improving the performance and adding in more and more unique features that just make the pairing experience uh, even better. Yeah, it sounds like you've built up this really solid base of knowledge, you know, both in native development and then web RTC and all that. And so it sounds like you guys are in a really good position to kind of go on to what's next. Yeah, thanks. Definitely feels that way. I feel like a week worth of work right now is was like multiple weeks of work, even just six months ago. Nice. So the, the growth is compounding for sure. One of the things that I believe you mentioned before is that you have to use some level of low-level graphics rendering or learn a little bit about metal on Mac OS. Why, why was this necessary? Is this for like the screen capture or, or what was that for? No, so the metal part is actually on the, the render phase. So the core reason why I wanted to learn about how that whole like section of, uh, of the, the process works is just because I think it's important to not 
like have everything be a black box and getting a, a basic understanding into how like graphics and OpenGL works, the difference between a vertex shader and a fragment shader, how to send, you know, those shaders and that your compiled program to the GPU. Like that's all stuff that I didn't, I wanted to know enough about that it wasn't just this like scary black box to me, <laughs> if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And so WebRTC provided a metal renderer already and it's, it's good. It works. Um, there's, I know for a fact, like when reading through the code, there's things I can do to optimize it a bit. There's some pixel conversions that don't need to be happening. Like they're happening twice type of thing. But for the most part, there was only like one bug with it that we had to fix for Catalina. So I haven't had to do too much work on that. But the most important thing for me was being able to read that code and understand what was going on. And then also, I probably have somewhat of a selfish reason to want to learn it because one day I want to build a game engine. And that's a big part of building a game engine is figuring out how to do the rendering piece. So nice. Yeah, I mean, I think like just in general, um, not even on specifically with WebRTC, like it's always good, I think, to go like maybe one level deeper than kind of where you're at, like one level of abstraction, you know, lower. And that way, if things are not working the way that you expect at the higher level, you kind of have a little bit of insight into to what to do next. Yeah, definitely. And I think learning about the whole rendering process and how Metalworks enabled me to be able to do that piece of code where I white out or black out the screen where the webcam is. Like I probably could have figured that out without that knowledge, but understanding at least a little bit more about how that whole subsystem works definitely made that be like a one hour thing instead of a one week type of thing. For sure. If you were starting over knowing what you know now, are there are there any things that you would have done differently? I think I would be less inclined to want to use Action Cable. We've been using Action Cable as our signaling service, and there's been a lot of like weird, wonky things with it, and it's very hard to debug. And I don't know. I think I would have preferred to just use like Socket IO or some some other service that's maybe a little bit more mature in the wild mm-hmm. or has been used in the wild longer. Uh, but that seems like relatively small thing in the grand scheme of things. I mean, in an ideal world, I wish I could start over and have all the knowledge I have right now about the space and the programming languages. Uh, The one thing I would say is I'm very grateful, like Swift and uh, makes it very easy to refactor like safely, which is great. So like as I've learned more about Swift development and and Mac OS development, I've been able to kind of uh, rejigger some of the application to be uh, architected a little bit more effectively uh, without, you know, too much pain like if i was using something like ruby for that it would have been a lot more painful but that's i don't know it's hard to say yeah yeah <laughs> don't don't have a good answer right i mean hindsight is <laughs> yeah hindsight's 2020 yeah. so um and, and also for the the listeners action cable being the um web socket i guess implementation for ruby on rails right yep thanks for clarifying that and uh, socket io being the equivalent for node.js yep yeah, there, I, I don't know. I'm pretty happy with the decisions we made. There's nothing like super bad that stands out like, man, if we had done this one thing differently, our our life would be a lot easier right now. I guess the the way that we set up calls. So uh, early on, you know, we kind of had this idea that it would always be peer-to-peer, one-to-one, like you're pair programming with someone. What we didn't fully realize is that a lot of people do what's called mob pair programming, where they have multiple people in a session. But both Ben and I, who like have more of a background in pairing, like we never did that. We've always only paired like one to one. And so a lot of the internals of Tuple was like very much set up in a way where it was only meant for two people. And I don't fully regret that decision because I would say that the code base was less complex by by doing it that way. 
Like there was less that we had to think about and it allowed us to get the app going a lot faster and we were able to get to market. We were able to course correct and make these small changes that people wanted in order for us to uh, become profitable and be able to do this as like a full-time thing. But if we had had funding and unlimited time, I, I probably would have bit the bullet and you know added that complexity into the app right from the start. Uh, and, and the complexity part being um, just the ability to start a call with like N number of people. But yeah, now we're kind of past that. Like we, the code base is set up in a way where that's no longer that much of an issue. So I, I don't feel too too bad about it anymore. Yeah. But I remember at the time dreading dreading that having to do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, in, in some ways though, it's probably it, it may have been good to start with just one on one because then it really helped you guys focus right just on the one use case. Make sure that use case is really solid and not kind of get distracted with you know things that not as many people use. Yeah, hundred percent. Also, this is uh, such a great example of you know, I don't know, product development. But so we felt like we were getting so many requests for doing n number calls, and back in the early days when we when we didn't support that, mm-hmm. and then since supporting it, like the percentage of people that actually do it is probably less than ten percent. Mm, it's yeah, tiny. Yeah. And so, like, I bet if we just didn't have that feature, it would still just be fine, right? Yeah. But we would probably get some complaints about it, and really, it, like the the challenge would be to keep a good psychological state and know that people are requesting something that yeah. like, you know, they don't actually want or use that often. But yeah, it's, it's funny how that works. Like people, a lot of people will be very loud about a certain thing, but then not a lot of your users actually end up getting value from that or wanting to, or needing that feature. So, right. It's uh yeah, that's tricky because you don't know until you actually give it to them. Right. <laughs> totally. So finally, is there anything you wish you had while developing the application that could be a feature in WebRTC, that could be an open source library? Is there anything that would have made things a lot easier for you? <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I mean, this is not code related, but I wish I had had multiple powerful machines sooner. Hmm. So this sounds ridiculous, but like I had my one main laptop for programming on. And for a while I was just using these old laptops as like my peer number two, peer number Uh, three while I was developing the app. And for a while I only just had like my one monitor and then I used laptop screens. And like, I don't know why, I guess I was so worried about running out of runway because we weren't making money for a while that I didn't just invest in having, you know, multiple monitors and like multiple new brand new machines that are powerful. And it's just like my dev life now is significantly improved (laughs) now that I have that. So that's definitely a big regret, something I wish I had had. As far as code goes, you know, I, I really wish that if I didn't need to learn C++ to have made tuple, I would think I would be a happier person. Mm, yeah. <laughs> uh, that maybe sounds somewhat cynical, but I imagine C++ is great if you're really good at it and you've been doing it for a really long time. But the one thing I know about myself is like, I'm, I don't know. I, it's very easy for you to shoot yourself in the foot in C++. And I have made like all of the classic mistakes in C++. And it definitely makes me wish that there was like a Rust implementation of WebRTC or, you know, some other language. Uh, there is actually a Go implementation of WebRTC called Pion or Pion. Not sure how to pronounce it, uh, which is very exciting to me. Definitely worth checking out if you're looking for, you know, trying to get your feet wet and more of like a side projecty type of thing with WebRTC. And you know Go or you like Go, I would I would check that out because um, it seems very cool to me. But it obviously it it ha- it's not as robust as the C implementation that's been around for you know ten years or whatever. 
Yeah, it'll be interesting to see if there's because I, I think like when people hear WebRTC, they're usually thinking of sort of the browser use cases, you know, someone doing video chat or sure um, audio chat, that sort of thing. And so, um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see if more people are using it in kind of the native space and if that sort of encourages the use of a binding in Rust or like you said, um, building out more in Go, that sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, even a full implementation in Rust, not just a binding, would be mm, would be cool. Yeah, um, I think that if the if the Google engineers and I mean, and I know there's a lot of Mozilla engineers that work on uh, WebRTC as well. I bet if Rust was you know what it is now, but back then when they started, they probably would have chosen Rust. But you know, is what it is. Yeah, <laughs> um, maybe not. I mean, they interface with Chromium, so uh, maybe they wouldn't have made that decision. Mm, but that's true. Trying to think of other things that I wish I had had. I wish I had been more open to uh, talking to experts early on. So I think there was a, a little bit of pride involved in like me not wanting to just use these resources. Like, oh, I need to figure it out myself. And every single time that we did a call with an expert on some specific area that I was interested in, the value that we got from that and the amount I learned was, you know, ten or twenty x how much we spent on it. Mm. And uh, I think the next company that I do, if if there is ever another one outside of Tuple, I'm going to allocate a budget towards talking to experts, but it's going to be a budget that I have to spend, right? So it's uh, like, yeah. there's this much money in the bank account each month, like you, it needs to be spent on somebody giving me some information. And the crazy thing is a lot of people just ended up helping us for free, even though we offered to pay them. And um, that's definitely something I've been very grateful for. I can't believe how many people in the community have like just offered their help or their expertise so, so I guess a lot of people just want to see this exist in the world and that's been fantastic. But yeah, a dedicated budget to experts would be another one. That's awesome. If you're stuck on something, you know, sometimes just talking to an expert is like, you know, makes such a huge difference. It could cut out like a, a week of time you would have spent uh, struggling with something. So yeah. Yeah. And when you're, when you're pre-revenue, like a week feels so long. It's, it's so interesting. <laughs> cool. Time is trippy. Well, I think kind of ready to wrap up, but is there uh, anything else that you think I should have asked? No, I think you did an awesome job. If, if people want to check out Tuple, they can go to tuple.app is our website. And yeah, my Twitter is my name, Spencer C. Dixon. So definitely reach out if people have questions or anything like that. Fantastic. So Spencer, thank you so much for coming on the show. I hope you enjoyed the chat with Spencer. You can get show notes and a transcript for this episode at softwaresessions.com. All right, see ya.